Hello and welcome to another episode of Toxicology, brought to you by Recovery Unplugged. Here at Toxicology, we talk all things addiction, recovery, and mental health. Tonight's guest, U.S. Army veteran, Sean Livingston. I'm your co-host, Jason Cabello, and as always, your host and mine, Joseph Gorordo. Hello, welcome to the show, everybody. Um, clearly, just me again today. Joseph is out there, and he is celebrating his, I believe it's the 11th year anniversary, I'm not sure, something like that. So, it's just me. Welcome, everybody, to, a, again, another episode of Toxicology, where we talk all things addiction, mental health, and especially recovery. So... Um, there's a lot going on uh, this week, all in the news and stuff that we've been up to here. You know, like um, I was saying a couple weeks ago, I was absent and it was because I was in our Nashville facility and we had a sober sessions out there, which was one of the greatest events I have seen in quite some time. And we have a clip from the sober sessions. If you, uh, Greg, do you, can you run that? It's a clip from our sober sessions, and there is a tech error right now, so we'll skip that. Maybe go to press radio and film. We got a lot of stuff in the news to be talking about then. Press radio and film. All right, so big news in the recovery world, and especially in the recovery unplugged world, is dear friend of Recovery Unplugged and board member of Recovery Unplugged, uh, Steven Tyler has recently relapsed and publicly um, announced that he had to cancel some, some shows in Las Vegas to get himself some help. And, you know, of course, it goes without saying that we wish Steven, um, one thing that I hear in recovery all the time, is a slow recovery and that... Um, you know, he he takes his time, gets himself better, and then, um, you know, makes it back to, to entertaining the world and being, being a light and um, a man in recovery. And, you know, I, for one, really respect when somebody who is in the public eye comes out when they, when they relapse. I think it's really important because I think if you are really vocal and really public about your recovery and things aren't going well that that you owe it to a yourself and be the people that are doing this thing to know that it does happen that you know relapse is a, a, a lot of people's a part of a lot of people's story and it's not necessarily a failure if you could um you know if you could brush yourself off and come back to it but you know it it scary these days because with fentanyl and a lot of things that are out there now that weren't out there when I was heavily using, um, you know, you don't really get these opportunities. So Stephen, we wish you nothing but the best and we hope that you come back soon and we'd love to see you at another Recovery Unplugged event soon. So there we go. Stephen Tyler, everybody. Let's all, all wish him well. So tonight... We have Sean Livingston, who is, has a documentary, who is, it is premiering, I guess, on, I think on Amazon this week, and it's called 100 Miles to Redemption, and we have an amazing clip from that, if we could roll the clip. Hundred miles, you're talking extreme right there. Uh, this race is uh, it's a tough hundred. I think there's sixteen thousand feet of climb. It sounds so crazy when you think about, oh my gosh, this is like four marathons and you're gonna do it without stopping. I just wanna go back home and look at my family and tell them I did it. Happy birthday, dear Sean. Raised children in a, a good household and a middle-class family, and I don't think any parent ever says, "Oh, okay, I'm prepared for my son to be a heroin addict." 
we as a society tend to view people with substance use disorders as criminals. It's easy to do that until it hits our families. I always viewed him as a superhero. I never thought he could really do anything wrong. As normal as it is for anybody to wake up and brush their teeth in the morning, it was that normal for me to wake up and stick a needle into my arm. You don't know how bad it hurts for me thinking about I have to plan his funeral. I would go months without hearing from him to find out that he had been in prison. Here we go again, you know. Thought maybe this time would be different. This running is what's, what he says and admits is saving him. So it was to go away, it'd be tough. There ain't no way in hell. I'm calling home after this and saying I didn't finish. His addiction didn't happen overnight. His recovery won't. Our family coming back together won't happen overnight either. fantastic so yeah let's bring him on sean welcome to the show man how you doing i'm doing very well thanks for having me yeah you're welcome man thanks again for being on whoever whoever did that 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 video is it's knows what they're doing man as a as a visual storyteller myself that is uh, some quality work there yeah he outdid himself yeah all right, so Sean, why don't you um, introduce yourself to the audience and um, you know let them know a little bit about you? Uh, my name's Sean Livingston. I've been uh, been here in Austin since for about the past five years. Uh, came to Texas in '07. I was in the army. Got stationed at Fort Hood. Uh, deployed to Iraq. Got injured. Uh, hurt my back. The uh, military stuck me on painkillers. I got left on the painkillers for about two and a half years, and they kind of just yanked them off me. Um, and let's not get it twisted. I was a partier anyways. Right, uh, right. So I, def I definitely played my part in the whole thing. But uh, came off the painkillers, and it just was a – it kind of ignited the, ignited the whole addiction in me and uh, just didn't stop. Got into, got into heroin and anything else I could get my hands on pretty quickly – Got kicked out of the military. Um, got started getting in a lot of trouble. Went went away to prison for two years. Got back out. Got in more trouble and uh, just got that, that cycle of things. Continued so, down the same path. So you know, there, there's a lot of misconceptions that you know most drug addicts come from really troubled homes and have really fucked up childhoods but i mean just judging by that that short video that we watched it seems like your family was really tight-knit really supportive that you had like a, a a good upbringing and a good support system at home so let's start with that let's start what was uh what was your childhood like um it was i mean i didn't have any you know childhood trauma nothing like that my my dad left when i was two so it was me and my mom for for many years um Luckily, when I think when I was around 10 years old or so, my stepdad came into my life and uh, just an all around great dude. Um, he, you know, for me to look back now as an adult and look at the job he did, you know, raising me and raising somebody else's child and especially for all the all the stuff that I put him through growing up. I mean, I couldn't ask for a better stepfather uh, and just, you know, played sports, had fun. Um, and, you know, I just. Had a had a pivotal moment my my junior year in high school. I was a I was a basketball player and had, was going to a Catholic school that I basically got recruited at to to play basketball there and got into a car accident on my way to school one morning. Um, kind of ended my basketball career, and so losing, you know, that was my identity growing up was being a ball player. And once I lost that in my life, you know, then I was kind of left with not knowing who I was. Uh, it, it was a tough time for a kid to try to understand that. And so yeah. the next thing was just kind of hang out with the fun people, which ended up being the party crowd. And I took right. a, 
so did that become your new identity the the party guy the yeah yeah absolutely were you, were you like a, a attention seeking or or anything like that definitely i think you know doing doing all this work i have over the the past years i looked at looked back at the way i dressed you know the way i acted um everything the music i listened to you name it was was all attention seeking um you know back when i was growing up it was baggy clothes and you know big bright jerseys and colors and stuff like that and you know i think it probably stems from you know my dad leaving at an early age and then always trying to jockey for attention from you know my mother was she's got her phd she was going to school so she was tied up right. trying to provide me with a good life so just trying to jockey for more attention in life absolutely and i could you know i could see if basketball was a positive thing in you in your life i'm sure and you were getting a lot of attention people were noticing you you were you were somebody there and then that goes away and then what else do you have to fill it in but to try to act out a little bit you know cause some trouble numb it with whatever you can when did when did you start dabbling when did you start first maybe doing softer stuff like drinking or smoking weed senior senior year in high school i'd say the sports kind of kept me straight once i didn't have once i didn't have sports uh in my life and was hanging around the party crowd i'd started doing the softer stuff i didn't really get into anything hard until maybe a couple years after a couple years after high school right uh, that's when I kind of started finding Coke and, and stuff like that. And I, there was just never, never anything in me. And I'm sure, you know, many of the people listening, there was never that, uh, every drug I did or every kind of tear I went up, there was no switch in my head that was like, Oh, this is bad. Shouldn't be doing this. It was like, Oh, that's it. Like that. This was all, this was built up to be to me. What was, what was I worried about? This is fun. Yeah. And so yeah. let's see, how, let's see how far we could take this. Yeah. Yeah. I get that, man. I, I was a total late bloomer. Like I, I, I would mess around with some stuff, but I mean, I definitely started with like the attention seeking and, and doing crazy shit. And then, um, yeah, but I wasn't, I wasn't into drugs. My, my parents were, you know, there was a lot of drugs around when I was growing up. So it was kind of like, it's what my parents did. So it didn't have that like shiny allure that it was like, Ooh, this is taboo. It was just like, oh, that's what my parents did. Like no big deal. You know, it wasn't until I was, uh, 23 where I, I really got started. So when did you, when did you, um, join the military? Uh, I, I kind of floundered around those couple years out of high school and, you know, tried to go to, tried to go to semester of college. I think I showed up for maybe a week and then just mm -hmm. stopped, stopped going. Uh, so shortly, maybe a year or two after that, I, I actually joined the air force and, uh, went away. I did six years in the air force and, kept it together for the most part with all that. Um, and then I got stationed over in Germany for a year and was under 21 there. Um, so couldn't really go out and experience the part of the parts of Germany I wanted to. Right. Uh, and so I thought I was homesick. I didn't really have a lot of life experience to compare it to. And so I thought being over in Germany sucked. I thought being in the air force sucked. And so I, I got out. And I did my six years. I got out and ended up back in my hometown and everybody was doing the same stuff. People were still partying and I got right back into it. And when I got back, Oxycontin had finally like hit big there. When I left, everybody was doing Coke. When I got back, everybody was doing Oxy. Yeah. And so I got, I got it. I got into that and uh, very quickly that got a hold of me. Yeah. It doesn't, that doesn't take very long. That's, uh, you know, I know we had talked before the show about like the South Florida connection and uh, you know, that's, uh, that, what that, what that stuff did to the country is just, it, it's crazy. Like I, and I remember seeing just the neighborhood where my mom lived. It was like working class, a lot of people in the boating industry, you know, people who worked hard, but get, get injured. And then once those things became readily available and doctors were just there to prescribe it, you know, not the, not the most honest doctors in the world and everybody could get them. And then the real problem was once everybody couldn't get them anymore. And then it was just like all hell broke loose. Yep. So uh, about what year was that, that you started uh, dabbling with the oxys or got hooked on the oxys? Probably about 2005. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. 2000, 2004, 2005. 
Yeah, yeah, that's right. About the same time where I, I, I started really, really heavily getting into them. And, you know, like yourself, I was, I like to party too. It wasn't like I was, you know, at that time I was kind of a dumpster. I would take whatever, but it was like the first time that I really had, a, you know, a high milligram one. And I was just like, this is it. Yeah. You know, I want to feel this way every day for the rest of my life. And I, I tried, I tried for a, a lot of fucking years to do that. So right. was there ever, was there ever like a point where there was like a fork in the road when you were like, if I'm, I could keep doing this, but then this is what I'm going to be doing. Like there, there's not much else going to be going on if I, if I keep down this road. I'd say the, the, the most the most pivotal moment would have been years years later after that I had you know continued after I got out of the army uh, after I'd done my Air Force time I had said I'd like floundered for a couple of years got into the army um, did four years there and it was not anything for me to you know anything to brag about I was you know basically a junkie the whole time just kind of skirting skirting by and trying to stay out of trouble as much as I could uh, right. But I ended up getting kicked out of the army after I got back from Iraq and uh, really, really quickly started getting into trouble, went away and did two years in prison. And for some reason, the two years in prison didn't phase me. Like it was almost as if the military had kind of prepared me for it. I was used to being, you know, being told when to get up, when to go to bed, was used to being in close quarters with nothing but guys. Like it was just, you know, prison was nothing big, but I got out and I caught two more felonies. Uh, and that fourth one, they decided to, the, they were going to charge me a habitual criminal. And at that, at that moment, when uh, I went in front of the judge and the, the sentence, I think, carried from you know 10 to 99 years. And he said that I'd already been in trouble. This was my fourth offense. He didn't see any reason to go under 10 years. Uh, or he didn't see any reason to go under 20 years. And so 20 years was going to be the sentence. And so I told you before, you know, we had started this. I used to run around in the streets thinking I was this big, tough guy. And another man looks you in the face and tells you he's sending you away for 20 years. Like all the tough guy shit goes right out the window. Yeah. And so that was the moment where I was like, you know, I have to, I've got to do something. Right. So was your, was your initial charge that put you in prison for the two years? Was that drug related? Yeah, all all four of my felonies were uh, possession of heroin. Oh, okay. How how did that first one go down? Um, going, I had moved. I was bouncing around in between those. Right as soon as I got had gotten out of the army and uh, was living in Dallas, and I'd drive back and forth to Waco to get my dope every couple of days, and just uh, was driving reckless on the way back you know, was, was too high and, uh, got pulled over and they had it in my sock and they had me. I didn't even really try to fight it. Was there a feeling of almost like relief when you got busted? Cause then you knew that there was like, I, I don't know where you were in your addiction at that time. No, but... there's definitely... no, relief. <sighs> no, no relief at that, <laughs> okay. no relief at that point. Um, I, I don't know that I ever felt that relief when getting, getting arrested um because i knew what was coming next and it was going to be a collect call to my mother and you know trying my my wheels already turning on some story i could tell her about how you know i was wrongly accused or some you know some manipulative manipulative way to to try to get get out of it or whatever yeah so i mean let's talk about because i mean i remember getting pulled over hundreds of time and my mom always tells me that i have i was born with a horseshoe up my ass just because there's so many times where i was like driving around with so much shit and just like and i remember i because that's why i asked because i had that that moment one time i was actually i remember it like it was yesterday i was driving from i had bought my mom a little diamond necklace and then at some point asked if i could have it back so i could go pawn it for dope um, and I was driving from my mom's house to the pawn shop already in so much fucking guilt and shame that I'm doing this and you know, that my mom actually gave it back to me and didn't make a big deal about it. Um, so I'm driving to the pawn shop and I got pulled over and I did not have a license and I had a warrant down in Miami and this was in Fort Lauderdale. So I, I had a warrant down in Miami and I was just like, this is it. It's over. And I, there, like the sense of relief kind of came over me. The only thing 
that worried me was being dope sick, going to jail dope sick. So tell me what that felt like. So, so for those of you who don't know, if you're doing heroin, and especially if you if you are supporting this addiction where you have to drive and go pick shit up, you're, you're, you're doing it daily, if not hourly. Um, and this is just to maintain so you're not getting sick. Um, cause dope sickness is, it's just terrible. I wouldn't wish it on my, fir- on my worst enemy. So what was, what was that feeling like when you fit, when you knew that you were going away and that you weren't going to have access to dope and having to detox in jail? That, that was, that right there was like, it's one of the scariest, scariest feelings because as long as I'm out in the free world, there was always that 0.01% hope that I was going to be able to scheme some way to get what I needed. And yeah. Right then and there is when you know that it's all, it's all coming crashing down on you. And so, I don't. Anytime I got locked up, it was I would immediately just try to sleep and try to sleep as much as I could because I knew the next, the next days to follow there wasn't going to be much sleep on it. Right. And just you know, it's it's nerve wracking enough getting locked up and you know making it to the back in county and everybody's looking at you trying to size you up and and do all this stuff and here, you know what I mean. I'm trying not to trying not to shit myself as I walk back there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what about when you, when you, when you went to prison, where were you able to, to get dope there? Were you using when you were in the joint? No, when I was, so they had just kind of instituted a uh, safe, safe prison rules. And so that was where in, in TDC, where if you, they started giving out free, like free world charges. So you could catch more felonies in there and they could extend your sentence. And so, any of the units I, I was on, uh, there was never anything serious, stuff like that. Thank God, because if it was there, I would have done it for sure. Yeah, yeah. And that would have, you, you most likely would have still been in if that were the case. Just keep on racking up charges inside and, you know, doing what you had to do to maintain that habit. So yeah. then when you got out of the initial two years, as soon as you got out, are you are you trying to put some a decent life together? Or are you going right back to the streets and 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 start um, picking up where I, you left off. I, I I broke the golden rule and 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 hit up my ex girlfriend as soon as I got out. That was the that was a recipe for disaster. So yeah, took, took me right back to the same people doing the same stuff, and uh, within no time I was you know back in, in more trouble. So so that's what you did. But before that, was there a thought of like, okay, I got this two years. I don't have a habit right now. I could start fresh, clean slate. What was there? Were you motivated to start something new, or in the, were you always just ready to hit the hit the ground running to to get back to the shit? No, uh, to be to be blatantly honest, I had I had found out uh, I got a good story around all this that I can I can tie into it um, that I'll tell you later once we start talking about the once okay. we start talking about the film and stuff. But uh, gotcha. no, I had found out that. It was it was pure ego. I had found out that my my ex girlfriend was with a guy that I knew, and so I was gonna I was gonna get out and prove that I was gonna get her back. And so that's yeah. all I was doing. There was no, I just wasn't yet in the mindset. Um, you know, I hadn't done any work. I hadn't done anything to to heal myself or really address my addiction or anything like that. So it was just the same the same dumbed down mind doing the same dumb dumb stuff. Yeah, yeah. We just got a really good comment from Peter. Gaspar on there. Greg, you could put that up. Thank you, Jason and Sean. This discussion brings back a lot of tough memories, but I eventually saw the light at the end of the tunnel. Clean and sober, 32 years. Blessings, everyone. Sergeant Army retired. That's amazing. 32 years. Yeah, thanks thanks for coming on, Peter. We appreciate it. Um, Yeah, so so after that, you you hit the ground running again. What what, what are the next couple years like? Uh, Just... I mean, nothing. I was, I think I had, uh, I was in, once I, once I had gotten out, I was actually in Austin. Uh, and I didn't ever get to see much of Austin cause I was held up in my apartment. The only time I was coming out was to, you know, get food or get dope and right, right. just started getting, uh, started getting arrested multiple times off for possession, got a DWI and it all. And then, uh, it was just kind of biding my time waiting till my sentencing. 
Yeah, and you know, it, it's so funny because I completely understand that feeling of like just keep on getting into trouble, living in that cycle, but then thinking like, why is my luck so bad? Why are these people always after me? They won't leave me alone. And it's like now looking back to see what I looked like back then and the shit that I was doing. No, I was like a fucking I thought I had my shit together. I thought I looked OK. And I was like, you know, people didn't know what was going on, but that was a fucking mess. I couldn't keep a fucking thing together. Absolutely. So there were there were two younger girls in the in the in the video. Are those sisters, stepsisters? So what? What in your one, in the one was the one who one said was that my, you were like a superhero? The one who yeah, that's, you a su- that's my sister. That's your sister. So, yeah. what is your family relationship like during all these times? So, um, I w- I was gone. You know, they saw my early early beginning of my addiction with oxy and stuff like that but then i left with the military and i never really went back so it was a lot of distant uh you know my mom knew things weren't going well when she didn't hear from me for long periods of time and she would uh you know come visit me or i'd try to go home and hold it together and and she would catch the vibes she knew she knew something wasn't right she tried to believe the best but it wasn't and uh it took me a long time um you know as the the doc, you'll see in the documentary a lot of a lot of the film is me trying to rebuild the relationship with my sister, and oh, I didn't okay. I didn't understand it for a long time because I never I didn't never feel I had done anything directly to hurt her like I'd never harmed her never hit her never stole from her right right anything like that and what you end up finding out in the film and it was really my first glimpse into what the family goes through. Uh, you know, you only ever usually think about your recovery. And you know, once, once you, once you feel that you've gotten better, you're like, Hey, everything's good. I'm back. Let's go. And starting to understand the healing that the family goes through and kind of how they just sit back and they're like, yeah, you're sober now, but they're kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop because it's, it's dropped so many other times before. Yeah. Uh, and so I missed out on my, my sister's entire beginning of her life. I wasn't there when she, I wasn't there when she graduated. I wasn't there when she went to prom. I wasn't. I wasn't there for, you know, when she started driving a car. All these, all these milestones I had missed, and so we had no trust. Um, I could remember always being there with her when she was a baby, but she didn't remember that. Yeah, yeah. I I had a nephew um, that I, I was around a lot during his, you know, between the ages of like two and i would say five or six and then i just started declining and then it's the same thing i just kind of i didn't want to be around i would show up i'd be all fucked up and the family was just like you know when when he stopped looking at me the same it was just like oh i just want to disappear you know and then to them you become like this mythical creature right like my brother who's out there you know i love him but i haven't seen him in so long and they just have these like these maybe faint memories or a, a picture that they keep around that, that that's how they remember you. They don't know what you're doing on your day-to-day life. And I'm sure there's some shame and guilt that kept you using because you felt like this about your family. And you know, that becomes this fucking endless cycle that, that it's so hard to break that, that, that merry-go-round that, that we're all on. It's like, you know, you would steal from your family and disappoint your family. And then you would use because of that. And then, you couldn't stop using because you have a, a habit now and then you start disappointing your family more and more and it just becomes just such a cycle that's so hard to get out of. Absolutely. When I, I remember when I had learned, my, my mother had told me one time that it had been so long since my sister saw me and the last time she saw me, like, you know, I have, I have a bunch of tattoos and she knew that I was, she knew that I was in prison and she saw on TV some of these prison shows, and so that's who she thought her brother was. Oh, and man. and I remember hearing that, and that that crushed my heart because I remember walking into prison and I, looking around and, and and feeling in my heart like this isn't me. I wasn't raised like this. Like I don't, not that I didn't belong here, belong there, but like understanding there were people that were kind of wearing wearing being in prison as like a badge of honor. Like they were proud they've been. Uh, you know, they were proud to go get penitentiary ink and like all this stuff. And I just remember like, I have nothing in common other than getting high. I have nothing in common with a lot of these, like most of these people. Right. And so for my sister to relate that to me and, you know, that being me and then finding out that her growing up, 
None of her friends even knew she had a brother. She would she wouldn't talk about me. Yeah, it's painful to can imagine it's painful yeah. to share about, you know. So then, you know, what what happens out of there? You're running you're running through Austin for a couple of years. Yep. Uh yep, run, running through Austin and catch my catch my other felonies and I go to uh that that's when the judge looked me in the face and he was going to send me away for 20 years and so my lawyer said uh I, I talked to my lawyer afterwards and I was like, look, man, I, I really like to go get some help for two reasons. One, so I don't got to go kick in jail. And two, so I can at least have a little bit of time under my belt and try to reestablish uh, communication with my family. Just so at the time they weren't talking to me. Uh, they wanted nothing to do with me until I changed my life. So just so I could try to reestablish communication with them and just so they would write me while I'm gone. Uh, and so he said, "As long, uh, go ahead. Go get help. As long as you're in help, I can keep getting your 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 case continued, and you know we'll we'll have sentencing afterwards." So I went and I checked in to the the Temple VA, and I did uh I did eight months there, um, and that's when I I gotten in the program. I had started going to AA, and I kept a folder of all the work I had done over. I I ended up staying there eight months, and so I kept a folder of every every single piece of work that I did while I was there. As I was going to AA, a lot of the people had heard my story, what I was going, what was going on, and they had written me some character letters. And so after about eight months, I went and uh, presented that to my lawyer, and uh, his jaw kind of dropped. And he was like, "Look, you're a you're a combat vet. You know, I I can see that you you're taking steps to change your life. So whatever you're doing, I need you to keep doing it." And so. Uh, I tried to go back and get back in the VA, but they had told me I had done too much time there. And so they referred me out to a state funded place here in Austin called a new entry. It's a very small, very modest, uh, place. Most everybody in there is like, uh, you know, homeless, fresh off the street. Um, and so, but I didn't care. I found out it was a six month facility and I was looking at 20 years and I was like six months is, you know, no, no problem. I'll go do it. And so I, that brought me back to Austin and uh, checked in there and just had a completely different uh, different mindset. And because that – when I talked to my lawyer and he said that, you know, whatever you're doing, I need you to keep doing it, uh, it gave me, like, a little bit of hope. Um, and that was the first hope I had had in so long. And so I went in there with a completely different attitude. And I went from, you know, the person that would just kind of sit in the back and, you know, not talk to people to being the – the first guy that's going to shake your hand when you come walking through the door and you know, any way I can help you. Right. And uh, the six month program kind of started reintegrating me back into the community. And uh, one of the most powerful things uh, that's ever happened to me was, you know, I'd, I'd grown up an athlete. Um, but now that, you know, I'd been done eight months in the VA, I'd done started to do this time here in Austin. Uh, and I just looked at myself in the mirror and I just didn't like who I saw anymore physically. Um, I gained a lot of weight. I was out of shape. I felt like garbage. I looked like garbage. Um, and so I wanted to start trying to address that. So I found out about a little running group that met uh, three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, right outside of the treatment center. And I was never a runner growing up at all. Um, I played sports. And so if I was running without a basketball in my hand or something, I was in trouble. So I was out there, you know, doing suicides or whatever, whatever punishment they were giving me. Yeah. And so I showed up to that run and uh, I was still smoking a pack of Newports a day and uh, thought I was going to do it. No problem. And I came in dead last place uh, with all the people that were running. I barely could finish two miles, but something made me want to keep going back. And I kept going back. And for the, that next six months, I never missed one of those runs. And I told you, I told you before, uh, if, if you have time, if I could tell you a quick story, please. Yeah, man, we got, we got plenty of time. So when I discovered this running, um, I looked back at all the other times I tried to get sober over the course, of all these years we're talking about, I had been in tre treatment about 12 times. Um, uh, and it was the same thing every time. And this time, um, I started running and I came in contact with this amazing, uh, amazing group of people. 
And anybody that lives in Austin or knows Austin, you know, you could go down to, you go to town lake, rain or shine, you know, day or night, and there's going to be people out there running. And so uh, I had heard about this lady um, in, in the running group and she runs trail races. And so there was something about hearing about that that just sounded cool to me. And so I went to like seek this lady out. Can you, for, for people who don't know, tell them what trail races are? All right, trail, trail races are so normally you have like, or normally you see people run road races, road marathons, uh, you know, 5Ks, 10Ks, half marathons, full marathons, stuff like that that are on the road. Trail races are just runs that are happening out on the trail. So you're running, but you're navigating terrain the whole time. And so it's, it's just a little different. Uh, you know, I, I, I ended up liking it a lot better because you're out in nature, you're away from your cell phone, you're away from people and cars and music, and it's just you and the, you and the train and the weather or whatever. Um, so running became this very, very uh, powerful thing in my life because it put me in with this amazing group of people, and I started running these races, and it gave me something that, that I was – inspired by something i was excited to wake up and go do every morning and it, it since my days of playing basketball i never had that in my life so remember when i was telling you about how uh remember i was telling you about how when i as i was getting kicked out of the military i got sent to my my first treatment center where i met yeah. that girl okay yeah, yeah. so when, as soon as i went to that treatment center i was not there for the right reasons i was just trying to stay out of trouble with the army and so I go in there and um, I met this I met this guy in the treatment center and he reminded me a lot of myself. We were, we were buddies in treatment and we were both in there not for the right reasons. And so we're in there, we're, we're talking shit, we're having fun, we're talking to girls, this and that. And that's when I made a drastic mistake and I started dating one of the girls in the treatment center. And so I do my time there, I get out. Um, I stay in one of the most toxic relationships I've ever been in for two years. And then I have to go away to prison. And so, like I was saying before, I got out of prison and I looked that girl up. Come to find out she's with my young buddy from the treatment center. Uh... And so uh, I started started texting her, started calling her. She started sneaking around behind his back to come see me. And then he found out, so he's texting me, and I'm calling him, and I'm trying to get him to meet me, and we're going to fight and all this grand stuff. And it was just – it was a whole mess. And so one night I had had enough, and I went, and I found his apartment. I showed up at his door, and I was trying to get him to come outside. And the girl, um, she loved the fact that there were two guys ready to fight over her. So she was kind of egging it all on. Oh. And he wouldn't come outside, and so that night she ended up leaving – and coming with me and so that was when i decided we were going to move to temple texas and i was going to go to the va and i was going to try to get help and uh you know life was going to be better and so, so she she was she was actively using or, yeah yeah oh, yeah. Okay. yeah um yeah that was our bond right there okay. Okay. um so we go to temple that night and i get a little mm-hmm. motel room and as she's unpacking her stuff uh out comes a laptop, now comes an iPad, now comes a cell phone and all this electronic stuff that I know is not hers. And so, like I said, this guy was my buddy. And the only problem I ever had with him was, you know, the girl. And so now I got the girl back. And so I don't care about the, I don't want the stuff. And stealing was not one thing I never really got down with in my entire addiction. I never, I never liked stealing something. I felt like it was bad, bad juju or whatever. Right. So I call him up and I tell him, man, I got your stuff. You know, I had nothing to do with it getting taken. I want to give it back to you. You're more than welcome to come pick it up. And for whatever reason, he sent his mother to come pick up the stuff because he thought I was going to like set him up or something. And so a very nice woman. I give her the stuff back. That's that. And so now I want you to fast forward years later. I ended up in Austin. I ended up in this treatment center and I start getting involved with the running world. And as I said before, running ended up being one of the most influential things to ever happen to me. Um, it, it transformed and took my recovery my mental health, my physical health to levels that I didn't know were, were possible for me. And so I meet this woman and she's going to start training me up to do trail races. And I'm very interested in doing them. So over the next couple of weeks, I start training with her and she's going to train me up for my first race. And so I'm super excited. And so we're out there almost every day running on trails all around Austin, um, and one day we're sitting there, 
and we're going and I'm pretty open about my story. And so we're kind of talking about my past and I tell her I'm getting about when I got kicked out of, he was getting kicked out of the military and I ended up going to treatment and I ended up getting involved with a girl in the treatment center and this and that. And at one point I said the girl's name. And when I said the girl's name, my friend stopped dead in her tracks and she looked over at me and she goes, Oh my God, do you know my son? And I was like, who's your son? Her son was my young buddy from the treatment center. Oh, wow. Holy shit. She was the mom that had come pick that stuff up off me years before. What? And we had no idea. And so I want you to think for a minute on how many different ways that story could have went down. You know, I could have robbed him. I could have robbed her. He and I could have fought. Um, You know, me giving that stuff back was the one honest thing I ever did in my entire addiction for whatever reason. And I still don't know to this day. Um, but what's the chances that, you know, three years, I would leave this city three years later, come back to a place where there's over a million people here and get plugged into a community and an activity that would literally change my life, you know, and it be this one woman. And so still to this day, she remains as one of my best friends. Um, you know, I would not be where I am today without her. Uh, I spend every Thanksgiving over at their house, but what, what's her name? Her name's Penny Lane, Penny like the Lane. Beatles, like the Beatles song. <laughs> Is that a real name? Yep, Penny Lane. Oh wow, that's amazing! I got chills from that one. That is. I mean, there's this stuff that you hear about when it's just like you do one one honest thing. You know what I mean? You could be in the middle of the the most scumbaggery that your life is, but you do like one little honest deed, one little honest thing, and it like the ripple effect of it. That's 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 insane, man. That's that's great. So yeah, keep going. This is this is you got me hooked already. Yeah. So that I mean, the she got me involved with the trail running, and uh, I started started running these races and she knew uh, she knew how to poke me competitively. Mm-hmm. And so my first race I went and I ran a, I ran a 10 K and I got done with the 10 K and I'm, I was all feeling good. And, you know, it was out on a, out on a trail, I think out in a, it's called Pernalis falls was where I ran my first race. So I got done with my 10 K and I was all kind of feeling myself. And uh, she looked at me and she's like, yeah, that that's cool, but you could do more. And so I was like, oh, like, <laughs> all right, I'll do more. And so I think, uh, you know, a month later, I decided I was going to run a 30K. Um, that's 15 point something miles. Um, got done with that. Same thing, was feeling myself. And she's like, yeah, that's, that's cool, but you could do more. And so my next race was a 50K. And then uh, within my first year of being sober, I had done 100K, which is 62 miles. And uh, along the way, I ended up being – um, kind of good at it. Uh, and so I started doing really well at races. And so when I ran that hundred K, I qualified for a race called Western States. Um, Western States is, are you familiar with the Boston marathon? Yeah. So the Boston, Boston marathon, you can't just go run the Boston marathon. You have to qualify for the Boston marathon. Western States is like the Boston marathon of hundred milers. Okay. So I I qualified to, to, to do that. And then, uh, Along this way, um, you know, my story amongst the recovery world is is a lot like most other people's. Getting in trouble, family stuff, drugs, um, you name it, mental health issues. Uh, but in the running world and amongst normies, um, they're not as not as open as we are with our stories and you know being vulnerable and stuff like that. So. Right. One, one, one thing led to another and people in the running world kind of started hearing my story and, you know, to another addict, it's nothing big, but to regular people, they're like, Oh my God. Yeah. 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 And so I had done a, uh, uh, a guy with the Austin, Austin marathon had, uh, heard my story. And so he did an interview with me and I did the interview and they posted it before that year's Austin marathon and Lance, Lance Armstrong somehow read it. And so Shortly after that, Lance Armstrong had me come on his podcast, and uh, things just kind of started building from there. Um, and along the way, after the podcast, uh, I had gotten member of the year in that little running group I was talking about that I'd meet outside of the treatment center. 
Um, and so one of the prizes of, of getting member of the year is they shoot a little two minute video on telling your story. And so met with the director. He, he shot that video and it's also to market the running group. Um, and so they shot that video and when we posted it to social media, um, out of nowhere, I started getting inundated with messages and messages literally from like across the pond all over the world. And it was, it was very mind blowing. And it was people that were, were, were messaging me and some people I knew, some people I didn't, some people had served in the military. Um, and some were just absolute strangers that started telling me very intimate things about their childhood or stuff they had been through. And that's kind of when I started to realize the power we all have as addicts and being open and being vulnerable and talking about our things. And I'm sure everybody listening here has been to a meeting or something where, you know, somebody shares something and it opens up a door for you and makes it okay for you to start talking about your stuff. Um, and one thing led to another and, uh, the, the director who had shot that little two minute video had uh, started seeing some of the messages that were coming through. And shortly after that, I had started training for this hundred mile race um, called the Pinhoti 100. It's on the Appalachian trail. It basically goes from Alabama to Georgia. And so he knew I was doing that and he approached me and with the, you know, with the amount of, exposure that the video got asked me if I'd be willing to do something on a larger, a larger scale. And he started telling me about the idea for the film, the documentary. And I mean, this, you have to understand, like, this is such a mind blowing, like, it doesn't even seem real. Like you want to talk about imposter syndrome. Like all I did was just kind of get my shit together and start running in a little bit. And for some, whatever reason, people started to, to take notice. So now I have some guy coming to me talking about, he wants to, he wants to film a movie and all this. And it's just, it's just wild still to this day. That and is. so, uh, so yeah, that's how it all happened. And, you know, and like you said, it, it, you kind of lose sight of it when you're going to meetings and you, you like these stories are not uncommon, like in, in our circle, you know what I mean? And it's, yeah. and, and it's just crazy that like, you know, and not to sound cheesy, but it's like a room full of miracles, even somebody in there on their first day, who's just trying to get help, like a room full of fucking miracles and you just become sort of blind to it, you know, but when the rest of the world is like, this story is amazing. And you're like, me what you, i'm yeah. just i'm just a guy who did a lot of drugs and then stopped and did some work on myself you know what right. i mean and then like but then you learn that you can inspire people and that you know your story is worth telling and yeah. that you know just like the the one good deed that you did caused this ripple effect to you you to meet penny lane and now look at all these things like every single person who goes through something and comes out the other side and is willing to talk about it and share about it like the amount of people that they could help it, it you, you can't it's it's unfathomable the amount of of hope that you get just when you put yourself out there a little bit so i i have to ask is penny lane's son um did, did he ever find recovery is he doing okay he did he's doing amazing he? he's a business owner i i spend i've been every past five years i've been every thanksgiving over their house we hang out every time um Man, he's doing uh, great that warms my heart, man. What yeah. a what a good story. Does does he make it into the documentary at all? Uh, no, he does not. All right. So part two right now. I'm calling dibs on. I'll, I'll we'll talk after the show and uh, we'll, we'll we'll get the ball rolling on that let's, one. Let's go. <laughs> so what what I do have to talk about because you were talking about that you were you were a combat veteran. So I'm imagine there's some sort of PTSD there. Uh the the VA would tell me so. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So running is, 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 I'm sure that's therapeutic for it. Um, and it, do you get, do you get feedback from a lot of veterans who, who talk about this with you? Um, quite a few. Yeah. Uh, the one, the one common thread, unfortunately with today's society and the VA and everything like that, um, is when, you know, when I got out of the military and I started going and seeking mental health and stuff like that. Unfortunately, the answer many times nowadays is medicine. Yeah. And so when, when I originally went in there, you know, they diagnosed me with a laundry list of things from, you know, overall PTSD, depression, anxiety disorder, panic disorder, agoraphobia, 
um, sleep disorder, nightmares, you, you name it, just this laundry list of things. And they, they handed me 10, 12 bottles of pills. Mm-hmm. And I just remember thinking like that, this is what got me here in the first place in a way. Yeah. Um, I definitely played my own part. I'm not doing that. You know, I'm not taking, I'm not yeah. making, making light of that, but, uh, and I tried, I tried doing the medication. And so through all this, I kind of started breaking my life down in three areas, um, looking at my mental health, my, my physical health and my spiritual health. And so I would always try to put my eggs in one basket. And so I went the got out, I went the mental health route and I did the groups and took the medicine. And for me, it just wasn't the answer. Uh, it, it just always felt like a bandaid. And I'm not trying to tell anybody not to take their medication or anything like that. There is absolutely right. people that, you know, benefit and live a much better life with it. But for me, it wasn't the answer. Um, then I tried to go the complete spiritual route and, uh, you know, 12 steps, 90 meetings, 90 days, recovery, recovery, recovery. If you weren't in recovery, I wasn't talking to you. Um, and what I found for myself was I just kind of stuck in a recovery bubble. Yeah. And I never did anything to realize that the reason we get sober and the reason we have that foundation, you know, in the in the 12 step world is to get back to living life and finding what we find joy in life. And so the, I never had addressed until the end was the physical, physical piece of my life and understanding that once I started the running, um, you know, the mental health issues I was having with the depression, anxiety, not being able to sleep or nightmares, a lot of that started melted, melting away very quickly. And it just started making connections in my brain that just weren't there before. Um, the way I started articulating my words and being able to speak to people in public and, uh, it kind of snapped me out of this, you know, this, I was, I was like frozen in arrested development, um, where, you know, I'm 30 something years old, still walking around with my hat crooked and my pants down around my ass, like talking crazy. Um, and just, I started running and after a while of that, I just kind of snapped out of it and was like, this is not the way a 30 something year old man carries himself. Uh, and so, you know, all these problems with mental health started to, to melt away. And I started to realize that this, this amazing group of people I had come in contact with um, in the running world uh, and finding something that inspired me and how that was actually feeding my spirit. And then finding other people in the recovery community or other people in general and them wanting some of what I had and, and getting them into running and watching them run races and them find the same thing. That was feeding my spirit. And so that was the that was the medicine you know, that, that truly helped me, you know, get sober and get over a lot of the issues I was having with PTSD. Yeah. So what is your, what is your recovery date? Uh, April 18th. Um, I just had five years. Congratulations, man. So if you could go back and talk to Sean, let's say April 1st, five years ago, or right before, you know, say a couple of weeks before you got in and you could have a window of what you, your life would be like now. Do you think you would have believed it? No, absolutely yeah. not. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely not. I, I've been talking about this a lot recently. Um, tomorrow I'm, I'm closing on a, I'm closing on a home, my girlfriend and I. And so just trying to wrap my head around that, like by owning or buying a home, like I never, if you would have told me that April 1st, that five years from now, I would own a home. Like you're out of your mind. Like yeah. that was never going to be an option for me in my life. And so and, go ahead. And, and it's being able to show up for stuff like that. And then the mundane stuff, like moving furniture, paying your bills, doing tough days. Like that's the stuff that gives you the strength to, to do these amazing things. You know, it, it's the little shit. And I always, Whenever I get mad, like I just went through a move. I didn't buy a house, but me and my girlfriend just moved into, you know, definitely an upgrade from our last one. And we moved and we're packing and we're stressed out and we're spending a ton of money. And it's just like, these are truly gifts of recovery. You know what I mean? Yep. These problems are fucking incredible compared to what I was doing just a little bit. Like six years ago today, I was still out there. You know what I mean? Right. I was, uh, you know, I got, I got six years coming up and you know we had talked about doing the runs in south florida and like public bathrooms in south florida like that's how big my world was you know mm-hmm. like six world now like here i am talking to you we never met before having a great conversation about how you you inspire people man like oh just it, it really gives me chills man this is this is incredible and i i it's just, it's the baby steps man because it's like 
what I'm hearing in your story is you just put one foot in front of the other, literally. And then, you know, the racing story, I'm no pun intended, but you know, and that's what it is, man. It's taking that first step, you know, finding out what's working for you with your mental health and, and going to meetings and finding that, and then doing the running thing and all these things just add up into an incredible fucking story. Absolutely. The the one, one thing I want to add to that is, uh, Another thing that running did for me, and I, and I think anybody, you know, anybody in early sobriety, and especially people that have gotten later in sobriety that look back at their early sobriety, is the amount of insecurity that you have once you kind of step back out in the world sober. Yeah. Um, when, when I describe it to people, as like to regular people that don't understand, it's like it's like stepping back out into the world naked. You know, you don't have anything protecting your body, and you just feel so vulnerable, and yeah getting out and running these races and finding something, um, you know, you were talking about the little mundane things uh, and, you know, those, some of those things crush people. Um, But finding an activity or something I could do in my life that, that I was finding so much benefit from, but something where when I'm going out to do a trail run, there's other people running and there's other people in the race, but like it's me versus me. And so doing something like, you know, my first ultra marathon or even my first race, and coming to understand that I was capable could, because I only identified as Sean the dope fan. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't think I was anything more than that. So finding something where I could discover that I was capable of so much more than I ever thought was possible um, for myself, especially um, that made all those mundane things and all those little problems for me, it made it seem less, you know, less likely. Like if I could do this over here, then I know I can do all this. And, and you know what it is, man, like what, what, I, what I see in you, and this, this is honestly from the heart, it's like true humility. You're not up here talking about like how you're, you know, you got your shit together and you need to do what I did. And I got this documentary and people want to hear what I have to say. Like you, you, you're such a humble guy and you're just like, yeah, you know, I was running and this stuff and they put a camera on me and all of a sudden I got a film crew behind me and now I got a documentary coming out this week. Like I don't understand either, you know, and that that's. That's what it's all about, man. So big congratulations on all that stuff, man. And and Thank now you. we're going to get to uh, rapid fire question time. It's rapid fire question time. That explosion means you have to think fast now, Sean. All right. All right. You ready? Yes. How many days do you have sober? Five years worth. <laughs> okay, I'll give that to you. All right. Who was your first celebrity crush? Pamela Anderson. Pamela Anderson. All right. What was the last movie that made you cry? Uh I know there's lots of them. You told us about you told me yeah. earlier about your girlfriend. I know there was and, I'd have to add, it was some it was some more movie that got me. Okay. All right, we'll we'll have to we'll have to double back around on that another time. What is your motivational song? The one song that gets you pumped and going? Um Scarface, no problems. Oh shit. Okay. Houston. Um all right, and you you're you're a pretty physically fit guy. When it's your cheat day, what's the first first junk food that you go to? Junk food, chocolate covered pretzels. Oh, that's some good shit there. All right, man. That's been my jam lately. That was it for rapid fire questions, man. Thank you so much. So let's talk about the documentary where people can see it and uh, what you have coming up. Uh, so Saturday, the, the film has kind of done its rounds. It's been, uh, it's been in, uh, 13 or it's been the film festivals. It's won, uh, 13 film festivals. It's won an award in almost every film festival. Uh, we've been touring around with it, kind of doing educational screenings um, over the past year or two. And finally, now the d- director has a deal with it's coming out on Amazon on Saturday. It's also going to be on like Roku and a bunch of other streaming platforms. The best thing to do is uh, just Google it um, on Saturday and it should tell you whichever whichever one you're uh, whichever one you can get it on. Cool. And that's a hundred miles to redemption. We'd love to have you maybe come out to recovery unplugged sometime and, uh, and show it and, and talk to the clients there. I'm sure you did, you know, inspire we, a ton of people. We actually, so, so currently I work for, uh, I'm executive director with active recovery coaching. Oh, 
and so so we bring uh fitness out to treatment centers work with um work with clients on the individual sessions the same the same thing that helped me get sober um was getting plugged in with that healthy community and finding something to challenge myself and show me i was capable for is now in in a weird way like what i get to do for work every day and so we actually come to recovery unplugged on the inpatient um on saturdays well, there we go. <laughs> You've already done. Perfect. No excuse. No excuses. I'm coming out there. All right, man. Well, we didn't even get to talk about what you're doing now with your recovery coach. And so you're going to have to come back soon. That's, All right. It's settled. And then we're going to work on the documentary between you, Penny Lane and, and her son, and then get that going. All right. All right. You heard it here first, folks. So, Sean, man, thank you so much. This has been incredible. Um, best hour of my week by far. Um, love to have you back and for everybody watching, thank you for tuning in, tune in again next week and definitely check out a hundred miles to redemption this Saturday on Amazon or, you know, just Google it, stream it, check this guy out. He's an inspiration and Joseph will be back next week. And as Joseph always likes to say, there's a thousand ways in and a thousand ways out and we hope you find your way. Thanks for tuning in everybody.